Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio here with Bill Whittle of Bill Whittle, uh, which is kind of what you do to a stick when you get over 70, when your suspenders go right up to here and you start complaining <laughs> about the kids leaving Frisbees on your lawn. Yeah. BillWhittle.com, uh, a uh, pilot commentator. And I guess here we have two guys who once went to theater school solving the problems of the world. So you really are in safe, if somewhat mimey hands. So uh, good Isn't to chat that- with you, Bill. How are you doing? It's great to be here, Stefan. Isn't that odd? You know, we both went to British schools. We're both theater majors, and out here we are out here doing what we're doing here. It's like it's looking into a, an upside-down mirror with this scrub in your hair. It does give you uh, a perspective onto, um, onto the left, though, doesn't it? I mean, when you grow up around theater people and you just see how emotion-based this is and how utterly, utterly independent it is of, um, of, of factual basis. I used to passionately believe in things I knew nothing about. Hey, before we get started, I just want to say something here. You know, I learned early, early in this trade that you cannot, you cannot read, you know, your comments on YouTube. It's just, it's enough to drive you nuts. And, uh, early on in this, I, I'm a pretty combative guy when it comes to, you know, what I believe in and stuff. And so are you obviously. And early on, I had a friend who, who found a way to appeal to the one force greater than my natural inborn orneriness, which is, of course, my vanity. And, uh, and, and he, said, um, he said, hey, you know, uh, Bill Zeus does not come down from Olympus to argue with, the, you know, with shepherds about the weather. But I did see on the, on the YouTube comments from the last one we did, I, had, I saw enough of it so that it, it, it got my attention. Apparently, a couple of people called me a statist. You know, if you're going to be um, Simon Wiesenthal, you're going to hunt Nazis all your life. You can expect to be called a dirty, filthy Jew. But when they call you a Nazi to your face, it has a different kind of a ring to it. So I just want to say for the benefit of those people, uh, I've been I wanted to be a fighter pilot since I was five until I was 17. I wanted to go shoot down communists and protect this country. And for the 30 years after that, like most of us, we had the luxury not to worry about any of this stuff. But from the time I've started doing this. I've been doing my best to defend American freedom, and I wore the shirt today because this is what I personally believe in. I believe in a very limited federal government. I think this giant state needs to be put back into the government-sized box it came out of. I want an army, a navy, an air force, and marines to protect this country from people who hate freedom, and I want a little tiny government that does pretty much this. It builds a couple roads between states, and it makes sure that it infer- it fairly enforces a very small number of laws to stop people who can't win unless they cheat or commit crimes. And if that makes me a statist, I wish you'd find a really, really high building and jump off of it because that'll give you enough time and free fall to elf yourself on the way down. If you call me that to your face, the, the, the evening is not going to end well. I did not take that very well at all. Nothing against you, Stefan. Let's have ourselves some fun. Some things you just have to stand up for and defend, right? There are some things that are mortal insults to you, and you simply have to respond to them. And, and now, of course, I'm going to get called it all the time, but at least I got my response. <laughs> I'm afraid you're only feeding the wildlife on the internet. No, <laughs> They're come back. Yeah, it's okay. Fine. I don't care. I'm not paying attention anymore. Right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at, at some point. But right well, now, I mean, I think that the hot news item, of course, is Donald Trump saying that uh, he wants to put a moratorium on uh, Muslim immigration into the United States, which, you know, is a man's opinion. Clearly, of course, it's a man's opinion who's running for the highest office in the land. So it's more than just some guy at a diner uh, spittling up his coffee in outrage, which doesn't add up to much. But it seems like the response is somewhat out of proportion to the practicality uh, of the idea. And I'm sure you're aware of what uh, he said. And what are your thoughts uh, on it? I saw something this morning on Instapundit where basically it was a letter written by a leftist reassuring the other leftists in this country that the election of Donald Trump wouldn't lead to an American Reich because of all the reasons that we're that we're um, not you know that we're not likely to to fall to an American Reich. But you know what's interesting about that article? 
that she wrote, Stefan, was there was nothing in there that the uh, that the actual Reich and, and Hitler's regime and Mussolini's regime was completely conducted by collectivists like herself who believed absolutely in socialism and this fascist idea. The, the word fascism, as you know, comes from fascisti. It's a bundle of sticks. It's the definition of a collective. The Tea Party and individualists and, and anarchists and libertarians are the precise polar opposite of, of these gigantic state models of terror and oppression. And for her to say that the Republican Party, you know, there are reasons, there are still some protections left why why we can't have a Republican Nazi regime here. Number one, of course, is that you can't spell Nazi without Ger- so- National Socialist German Workers Party, right? You can't even spell Nazi without that. Um, I do find it also interesting that those people on the left who are worried about a Trump um, uh, a, a Trump fascist tyranny are the ones who are supporting this current president who's a, who is doing his level best to eliminate every single one of our uh, Bill of Rights protections. He wants the First Amendment restricted. He wants the Second Amendment restricted. He wants the Fourth Amendment restricted, Fifth Amendment restricted, Tenth Amendment restricted. So let's just start from there. The problem of totalitarianism in this country is not going to come from, from the Republicans. It's going to come from the progressives that are currently in power doing everything they can to erode those freedoms. That said, the, the, we can do an hour on this because I think this is a, a really core foundational issue that deserves serious discussion without all of this hysteria. Islam in it appears to me historically and culturally, it, Islam appears to be unique in the world in that the core religious beliefs. And by the way, one of the things that makes Islam unique is it's not just a religion. It is a social political order that has religious uh, overtones, needless to say, and re- religious motivations, but that religion pushes those directly out into the public life. It's the only religion that calls for world conquest. It's the only religion that calls for domination. It calls for uh, the, the, the secret truce, the hudna, the takaya, all of these all of these um, opportunities to overthrow the infidel. And it's the only religion that divides the world into Dar al-Islam, the house of submission, and Dar al-whatever the one is, I've forgotten, which is the house of war. You either submit to Islam or you're at war around the world. They're at war with everybody. So I think we have to have a start on this discussion about how do these two fundamental ideas, which are in opposition to each other, get resolved. Not only American freedom, we talked about that last time, we talked about how how American ideas of of freedom of speech, freedom of thought, and so on, and, and gun rights for that matter, are antithetical to Islamic beliefs. They're not just different, they're antithetical. Now we have to ask ourselves, how does our fundamental belief in being a nation of immigrants who become new people, e pluribus unum, how do, we, how do we take that fundamental principle and apply it to a group of immigrants who, in my reading of history, are unique in history because they're commanded to change, take over, and conquer whatever lands they're sent into? Whether they do it or not is, of course, the issue. Well, um, my argument has been that to call Islam a religion is like calling communism an economic theory. That's right. And communism is, uh, of course, an ideology that sought world supremacy. It was international world communism. Their stated goal was to turn every square inch of uh, uh, land uh, up to and including uh, the North Pole into a communist, what always turned out to be a totalitarian dictatorship. 
And in the 1920s, of course, when a lot of communists were flooding into the United States uh, and the ideology that the communists uh, subscribed to called for the fundamental alteration in the system of social organization. That's a very nice way of putting it to say they wanted, they wanted to, overthrow. to overthrow the government. Yeah, yeah they right. wanted to overthrow the government. They wanted to overthrow. And overthrowing the government is, is obviously <laughs> bad enough legally, but it's not like I mean, the Americans wanted to overthrow the British uh, government, right. uh, that, that, but it's right. what they want to replace it with that, that's, that's exactly even right. worse, yeah. right? So, Precisely right. Yeah, so I mean, um, uh, so to say that uh, people are anti-communism and then say, well, communism is just an economic theory. Unfortunately, it's a rather well-armed economic theory that has a habit, uh, communism is a well-armed economic theory that has a habit of taking over countries and making life pretty unbearable for anybody with an IQ over 84. And so that, I think, foundationally, when they say, well, you can't have a religious test for immigration. Okay. But the problem is not the religion. The problem is the, 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 the focus on uh, overthrowing the 2,500 years of painfully developed Western uh, freedoms and replacing them with a theocracy that will uh, destroy the entire Western way of life and replace it with something that will be fundamentally unbearable for myself, for yourself, for most of our listeners, from, from everyone and everything that I hold dear. So that, I think, is the issue. It's not anti-religion. It's anti-theocratic dictatorship, I think, is where I'd put myself. Yes, and I think this is the this is exactly precisely where the conversation needs to start. That could couldn't that was just beautifully said. Uh, I read David Horowitz, Horowitz's book called Radical Son about what it was like growing up as a red diaper baby, and I and I and of all the things in that book that struck me and filled me with up be perfectly honest, filled me not only with rage but filled me with a burning hatred, was that his co- actual communist parents. These were communist pe- people sent to America from Russia to overthrow the country. That they were they they were. The communist vanguard, I want to say in the in the twenties and thirties, and apparently David Horowitz's mom and dad would take him down a street. You know, they'd walk him down downtown Manhattan, and they'd say, "You see this Wall Street? One day this is going to be Rosa Luxemburg Boulevard, and one day this is going to be Lenin Avenue." And it not just made me angry; it it filled me with hatred because. Because this country had offered those people refuge. It had given them their lives. Same thing for the Frankfurt School. I don't have to tell your readers about the Frankfurt School, but in a very, very short nutshell, after World War I, all the communists in the world get together and say, what happened to the big communist revolution? What, where did it go? Why did it only happen in agrarian Russia? Marxist theory said it was going to happen in the industrial countries. Why isn't it? Why isn't Germany communist and Britain and the United States? And they realized it was those damn capitalist sons of bitches had created so much wealth for the average working man in such a short period of time. Jesus Christ, in, in America, some of these workers have their own cars, for God's sake. And and so there was no economic reason for the workers' paradise, so they decided to go after the dispossessed. This was the idea of the Frankfurt School. And so far, so bad, right? So far, so bad. They're just another evil group of totalitarians overseas. But as Hitler starts to rise in power in the 30s, the members of the Frankfurt School, many of whom were Jewish, seek refuge in America. They put the Frankfurt School at Columbia University, about 100 yards away from where they give out the Pulitzer Prize, by the way. And and for the next 25 or 30 years, guys like Sololinsky sat here and tried to destroy the country that had given them their lives. And that is appalling to me. And I think you can certainly make the case that those Muslim immigrants who believe that 
the West is dying and that this is the front wave of immigration for, for the beginning of the caliphate all around the world, that those people can in every way fairly and equally be equated to a family of Nazis wearing armbands who are shouting death to the Jews because that's what they're shouting all over the world. Is this the kind of people we want to let into this country? We're going to overthrow the United States of America and murder all the Jews first. They're to be the first ones we murder. We'll get to the homosexuals next. That's what we believe. And you need to let us in because if you don't, that's not who we are. <laughs> yeah, it seems that the exact opposite of who the West is, is something like Sharia law. It's something like uh, an ideology where uh, in order to accuse a man of rape, a woman needs four male relatives. Uh, otherwise, she is the one who's punished, who has stonings and beheadings, that's, that's amputations right. for uh, crimes, clitorectomies, putting women in these giant rolled up beekeeper suits in a hot sun. I mean, this the idea that, um, Lovely uh, that this is somehow not who we are to oppose yeah. this kind of ideology is fundamental. It just means people have no idea who we are anymore. Otherwise, that would be an incomprehensible statement. Yeah, well, let's get cut, cut right to the chase. Okay, when President Obama says that's not who we are, that's not what he means. What he means is that's not who I am. That's mm. what he, anytime you hear Barack Obama say, that's not who we are as Americans, that's not who we are as a country, what he's really saying is that's not who I am. Oh, you want to protect yourself against this kind of Islamic nightmare that's happening in Europe? No, that's not who we are. No, that is who we are. That's who you are. And and it's obvious. It's I mean, it's immediately obvious. Everybody knows he was raised in, in Indonesia and that he was registered as a Muslim student in an Islamic school. He said that the Muslim call to prayer in the morning is the most moving and beautiful sound he's ever heard and so on and so on and so on. And he said Somebody if there's made, a conflict, he's going to side with the Muslim. He said, he's yeah. openly said that in his biography. Yes. So. I think the most the most credit you can give this guy, and, and it's not much credit, and I'm reluctant to give it to him anyway, but I did read an analysis that said that the most credit you can give to Obama on this is that the Islam that he grew up in, in Indonesia, was probably the least virulent form of this religion. He takes that as the norm, right? But we're not talking about Indonesian immigrants. And even if we were, we still have to understand the fact that, look, there, we talked about this last time. The fundamental error, if we don't stop this error now, we will never forget about fighting the problem. We'll never be able to have a discussion about the problem. The fundamental error we make and have made since 9-11 is this idea that the jihadi extremists have hijacked the religion, that all we have to do is tell the Muslims what the Quran really says and, and everything will be fine. That is not the case. On the contrary. The jihadis are quoting the Quran as it's written, and when people come up with these peaceful surahs, they're abrogated by more uh, violent surahs written later in the Quran. They literally cancel out the earlier ones. If we don't understand that it's the, Mus the moderates who are the apostates, it's the moderates who are off the book, so to speak, we can't have a discussion about this. It just it's, it's simple. It, it just is just nuts. This, yeah, this focus on the many nefarious ways in which leftists and multiculturalists have conspired to destroy uh, free markets and limited governments and so on, which do stand. I mean, it's really important to understand what life looks like outside of these countries, because yeah. every culture and every religion and every group thinks, oh, we're the best, we're the greatest. And that's how they sell this vanity addiction to the next generation. It's kind of tough to look at Anglo-Saxon law, common law derived, uh, um, Roman law derived and uh, Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian philosophy uh, derived societies and say, Boy, you know, some guy in a mud hut in Afghanistan looking at the skyscrapers of New York has a very tough time thinking that his group is the best. And there is this vehement hatred against the good for being the good. And uh, I would sort of argue that there have been two fundamental waves in which the leftists uh, have tried to destroy 
capitalism. The first, of course, as you talk about, was the red diaper babies who came in and wanted to foment mm -hmm. a revolution in the United States and seized upon, of course, the socialist created and maintained Great Depression of the 1930s as yeah, they tried, right. tried to do that. That all fell apart when it turned out that Hitler had, and Stalin had signed the Pact of Steel. Uh, as as right. soon as as soon as it was revealed, uh, Stalin's machinations uh, that was um, that was it for their chance. So then they switched. Yeah, and, to uh, and they switched. Khrushchev's Khrushchev's uh, reforms. I was not want to say it's about 1954. His letter basically revealing all of the crimes that had been admitted under Stalin really knocked a bunch of these uh, red diaper Western uh, communists for quite a loop. They really didn't quite know what to do about that, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, exactly. Oh, no, right. yeah. So, their, their so philosophy they, fell apart. Well, they, they borrowed their way into the U.S. government. And, of course, Joseph McCarthy, um, who people should read Ann, Ann Coulter's history of that, it's incredibly eye-opening the degree to which Joseph McCarthy was actually fighting against a giant termite infest, infestation of literal communists, particularly right. in the State yeah. Department, who engineered things like the fall of China into communism, surrendering one of the world's largest populations to a communist dictatorship, which was the most murderous dictatorship in all of history. And of course, Without the only problem is, in the only problem for the leftists in this whole narrative is Joseph McCarthy and Richard Nixon, who got his payback of course, uh, later on in Watergate for his opposition to the infiltration of communists into the State Department. That carried along for a while until, as you point out, Khrushchev revealed in a private speech in the 50s and then more publicly in the 60s, the crimes of Stalin. And then the whole communist movement fell apart and they knew they could never infiltrate or win the hearts and minds. And Joseph McCarthy had been successful in pointing out some of these infiltrations. And then they switched to uh, immigration from third world countries as an attempt to continue to destroy the capitalist system. And they've been remarkably effective at it. And it really is because it's such a long con. It's such a long term gain, a game that it's really hard for people to find the might uh, and the will to fight back against it at any particular moment, because it's just like one extra grain of sand on the beach. You don't go and sweep anything until you're buried. Well, let's come back to Trump for a second, um, because he's certainly the hot topic. Uh, the Frankfurt School uh, basically determined that there would be uh, two tools that they would use in order to destroy America, which was the last moral, physical, intellectual bastion to their paradise on earth and their socialist uh, utopia. And they basically decided they needed a sword and the shield. And the sword was critical theory. The sword of critical theory was the idea that we are going to attack the middle from outside. We're never going to have the outside attack each other, but we're going to have every single group of, of dispossessed that we can attack the middle and destroy the moral foundation of the middle as much as possible. So women are taught that this is the most misogynist society in the history of the world, and all all that white men want to do is keep them uh, barefoot, naked, and pregnant in a, in, a, in the kitchen. Well, they didn't say naked. I probably just threw that in on my own. Uh, <laughs> but uh, barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Um the, we're told that this is the most homophobic uh, society in the world where, where homosexuals are dragged behind pickup trucks. We're told that it's the most Islamic phobic uh, uh, country in the world, when in point of fact, obviously, there's not a single Christian practicing their faith anywhere in the Middle East without having his head chopped off or thrown in jail. And, of course, we're told that slavery uh, was – was, that not only that slavery was the greatest sin in history, but they were the, essentially the only people that held slaves. My understanding of the African slave trade was that about nine, I'm sorry, it was about 11% of the total slaves taken out of Africa came to the United States and the rest of them went to European colonies in the, in the Caribbean. Uh, oh, of hang on just, just a sec, because it's, we've got a whole presentation called the truth about slavery. We can link below and I won't keep you off your thought. No, please, but please. The, the Islamic slave trade went on for over a thousand years and resulted in the deaths of over a hundred million blacks. Um, I don't see anybody clamoring for reparations Still doing from it today. Abdullah von Caesarhead uh, in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. And, no, that's right. And, and then there's the idea that American, uh, that white Americans gave smallpox infested blankets to the 
to the Native Americans. This is common knowledge. And they did this 75 years before germ theory was ever, you know, acknowledged as as a means of spreading pathogen. You know, these biological weapons that we sent to the Indians. We're so evil, years. we can time travel. That's, that's just that's one of the skills you get as a white person. Future, you can time travel and with all your All we had time to do was pick up enough biological weapons, things so we could continue our genocide, right? That's not to say, needless to say, that's not to say that America has, has, has done some evil, sinful things as a country. But as a general rule, I think we're the least sinful and evil country in the world. So back to the point about about um, the, the two weapons of the Frankfurt School. Critical theory says everybody attacks the middle all the time constantly to constantly destroy the Judeo-Christian scientific ethic, the, the, the ethic that's built the West. Attack it from all sides and never, ever, ever let blacks attack homosexuals or, or feminists attack blacks. It's all got to be towards the center from the outside. That weakens it. That's the sword. The shield, of course, is political correctness. And political correctness is simply a great way to tell you to shut up. Andrew Clavin did a video. That's that's basically it. Political correctness means shut up. In other words, if I criticize Barack Obama for his ruinous spending, I'm doing it because I'm a racist. Um, Bill Schultz uh, on, um, on uh, Greg Gutfeld on um, Red Eye. It's about I think this was about a month after Obama was elected, said the fact that Barack Obama's black is the only thing I like about the guy. And, you know, and I, I, I kind of agree with him, frankly. I don't hate him because he's black. I hate him because he's, he's red a- and probably green, too. Um, uh, and, um, and I don't mean economy. Uh, I mean uh, eco- ecologically green. So political correctness is the idea that you are not allowed to respond. Your argument, your counterargument, your defense of these values is taken off the table with an ad hominem attack. We don't have to listen to you. You're a racist. Don't have to listen to you. You're a, you're a, uh, you're a, a misogynist. Don't have to listen to you. You're a homophobe. And so with this sword and the shield, they've done tremendous damage. Now I read back to Trump. I read uh, an analysis by a guy who I happen to think is brilliant. I mean, genuinely brilliant. And that's Rush Limbaugh. And Limbaugh said, look, the reason that the media is apoplectic over Trump is because they don't control him. They, he does not play by their rules. He simply doesn't care. You get the sense that he doesn't need the presidency. You get the sense that he just, he doesn't, he's, there's a lot I don't like about this guy, a lot, but he doesn't seem to be beholden to this. And the fact that he is going directly in the face of this political correctness is what's giving him his numbers. And frankly, if it took Donald Trump to destroy the media's power of political correctness, then I'd be willing to take the rest of the risks that would come with his presidency. It has been historically the case in most theological societies that the priests anoint the king. Because, of course, that's the king right. is that's supposed right. to be... It has to be maintained, exactly. Yeah, you and can... the media, uh, all they did was they shifted from the priesthood to the hysterical, sociopathic, verbal abuse of the media. And so uh, they want to anoint the king. And here comes someone on who who they can't anoint and they can't block. And, and what he's showing, it's so fantastic, is what a paper tiger the media actually is. Because they yes. throw everything they can at him. He's like one of those that's giant Japanese robots, you know, with the helicopters that just nothing yeah. happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe little rockets will come off of his fingertips. Trumpzilla. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'd really like to see is have his arms basically fall off and four jets come out and have him just start <laughs> spinning around. That would be that'd be fantastic. Now, what you said about about the, the the method of feudal control over people is profoundly correct. If you look at the history of enslaving populations for generations, if not millennia, you need both parts of that. You need the you need the mechanisms of the state on the ground whether it be a kingdom, an empire, or whatever. And you also need the religious justification for that empire. And basically, it's very simple. The way it works is the 
they they find a guy who wants to be king, and he's a ruthless, bloodthirsty murderer, right? He's, you know, he's Henry II or whatever the case, and he's ready to do some serious killing. And so he's got the political force, and he's got the army, and he's got the mechanical needs to make this happen. What is essential to his rule is because sooner or later, millions of people are going to realize we're we're working ourselves to death here, starving to death, so we can take our potatoes and our chickens into this guy who lives in a, in a palace of gold. The only way you can have that continue is if you have a priesthood that tells these people, yes, it doesn't seem fair now, but this is God's will, and if you don't do it, the, the volcano's going to erupt. And by the way, if you give him all of your chickens and potatoes and starve to death now, in the next life, you're going to be just fine. And I want to say one thing about this Muslim, um, uh, this idea of the Muslim afterlife, because I think this goes to something you were talking about earlier, and, and I think this is the primary motivation of the hatred that, the, that Islam feels towards the West. If you look at the Quran, I, again, this I think also makes it quite unique. If you look at the Christian afterlife, most of the values of, of life is leading a good Christian life on earth are repeated in heaven. Likewise, for Buddhists, when they attain a state of nirvana, then 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 they they their values are carried into the either the afterlife or whatever the religious goal is. But in Islam, you're commanded no music, no wine, no gambling, no women. But their afterlife is Las Vegas. I mean, their afterlife is Las Vegas. Their afterlife is a place where they lie on cushions. They're surrounded by rivers of wine. They have 72 virgins to service them 24 hours a day. They can do whatever they want to, hold whatever slaves they want to. Their religious afterlife is the antithesis of what they're told to do on earth. And it is also, this is the point, buddy, the the Islamic afterlife is the life that all of us in the West lead every single day, and it's got to drive them nuts. They are God's people. They're living in abject poverty and abject savagery, and they know it. They may have a cell phone, but they know they don't have how to build a cell phone. Meanwhile, across the ocean, these infidels who God hates are living in their paradise. We have all the wine. We have all the women. We've got all the we've got all the money. We've got all the luxury, and it's not. Of all the things that happened on 9-11, the thing that was most interesting to me and I thought was the greatest weapon in fighting these people was the idea that Mohammed Atta, who you've got to figure is in the top 1% of 1% of 1% of these jihadis because he's ready to train for 10 years in order to destroy himself. He was going to strip clubs. He was going to Vegas. He couldn't resist the temptation of the West. And I think Islam's attitude towards America is the relationship of a very lonely, very dangerous little kid who asked the prom queen out and she says no. And now he's decided, well, if she's not going out with me, then she's going to die. Right. The uh, this idea that Trump is is the club against the media, uh, the traditional deal uh, for a lot of monotheistic uh, religions is that the priests say that the king is appointed by God and therefore obeying God, obeying the king is obeying God. And in return, the priests destroy any competing religions. And, and that God has gives been... Them tons of mo- and the king gives them tons of money. Yeah. Tons of money and tons of land, right? Tons of land and land and land and money and power. And that's how the cycle continues. The priests tell the people that the king is divinely appointed and the king takes the land and the riches and the gold and hands a significant piece of it over to the priesthood and the power relationship is maintained. And the problem is... Donald Trump is not ready to give the media anything. And so since he's not got an exchange relation with the media, the media has no power over him. Well, but it's two things as well. You've talked about the Internet being um, I, I've, I did a podcast. I've actually been doing this. I just realized I blew right past my 10 year anniversary. I've been doing this 10 years. But I did a podcast. No, oh, sir, thank you. Congratulations. That's extremely impressive. Thank you. Um, 
And it all led to you, Bill. That the yeah. whole the whole yellow brick road has been <laughs> right down to it, Stephen. You know, it's 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 three it's over three billion years of human evolution. And really, you're looking <laughs> that's at right. All but aiming to get a very us. kind of you to recognize. So uh, I did uh, shows on the internet being the new Gutenberg. The Gutenberg Press, of course, able was able to take the Bible that Martin Luther translated into the vernacular and gave it to the people so they could peruse things for themselves and weren't dependent upon the priest's translations or uh, reporting of what happened in the Bible. And in the same way, I would argue that... Um, uh, since really the fall of um, organized religion as a foundational principle, particularly in Europe, the media have taken the place of the priests and the media anoint the uh, political leaders. And in return, the political leaders basically give exclusivity and information to the media. That's now, what's happened, of course, is that Donald Trump can take his case directly to the people and they can bypass the media. I mean, I receive very little information from Donald Trump from the mainstream media. You know, for the same reason that I try not to drink out of moose tracks that have things floating in them, <laughs> and I just don't consider it particularly good for my health. No, and so I think that this uh, the internet has really broken up the uh, the old relationship between the propagandists. Uh, and the political power so that people like Donald Trump can speak directly to everyone. He goes and gives a speech to five or 10,000 people, but millions of people watch it and can actually, they don't hear him filtered in the same way that the old, the Bible was not, doesn't need to be filtered after Martin Luther through the priest. They can go and read it directly. And that bypassing of the middleman is something that is driving the, the media completely mental because if information can pass directly to the people, these guys might have jobs which their natural talents would suit them for uh, and maybe say, would you like fries with that when you walk up to them next time? I would agree with you that, that Donald Trump can do that by using the, the media, uh, uh, the internet in place of the media, circumventing the media. But I think that's true for all of the candidates. I think Donald Trump has a, has a Trump card that is beyond that, well beyond that. So here's what Donald Trump understands, I think. Donald Trump understands that he does not need the media, but the media needs him because Donald Trump is the most controversial person in America. And while every single member of the mainstream media loathes and despises him, he can step out of a 7-Eleven and there will be 700 news trucks there. Donald Trump understands that he is using the media's – look, the media has an addiction and politi politicians have an addiction. Politicians' addiction is to, is to power. The media's position, uh, addiction is to influence, and, and that influence comes through viewerships. And they know – that Donald Trump is the story. They have to cover him. It's not like they don't want to. Their addiction for, the, for, for sensation forces them to cover him. And the more outrageous Donald Trump becomes, the more coverage he gets because it allows the left to go completely on their, get on their high horse of moral superiority. And they think that's going to do it, but I don't think it is going to do it. I think, that, I think those days of political correctness are over or, or, or coming down fast. Trump's, the genius of Trump I predicted four days after uh, the last election in a speech I gave where, where if Romney had said this, he would have won the election. I predicted that the next president was going to come from the pop culture because the pop culture has so much influence over over our brain space, our, you know, just our just the brain cycles. And Trump is an entertainer. And people talk about he's a businessman, he's a corporate guy, he's a real estate. Yes, but he's an entertainer. There's hundreds of thousands of of, of of high-level corporate businessmen in this country, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them. But Trump is Trump because he puts his name on these garish buildings, and he's an entertainer. You may find him horrible and vulgar, but he is interesting. And that's the one thing that the media can't avoid. So on some level, uh, Rush's point, I, I, didn't, I didn't get it until I really read what he wrote. 
Trump is is playing them like a Stradivarius. He he he'll say something outrageous. The press will be mortified, and they'll come back at him and say, "You can't surely mean this." And then he'll just double down, and he gets all of the attention. And he and 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 when when you look at Donald Trump's numbers, these numbers are not so much for Donald Trump as they are numbers for somebody speaking a, up against this wall of political correctness and just kicking it down. That's what that's what drives this guy's popularity. And the, the, for so many years, there have been people uh, largely on the right who've been complaining about media bias towards the left, like left wing media bias, like some study that like 95 percent of the reporters in Washington, D.C. are Democrats and so on. And I think what he is showing is that when someone says to me, two and two make four, I'm like, OK, yeah. But when somebody says, he said two and two make four. I can't. You know, when they go all scanners, you realize that you're kind of living in two different worlds. And the more that the American public and the world as a whole realize that the media and the mainstream are living in antithetical universes, the quicker the power of the media to shape policy is going to be broken. Because look, when to just to take the mainstream narrative, right? When when um, Islamists, uh, largely from Saudi Arabia, attacked. New York on 9-11, they said, okay, well, we're going to go invade a bunch of Islamic countries, <laughs> right? I mean, I know that uh, Iran was largely secular, but it was largely populated by, by Muslims. And then, you know, if you look at Syria and you look at Lebanon, you look at Libya, you look at other countries, there's a lot of conflict going on. So it seems like there's kind of a war going on with uh, uh, Islamics uh, and, and the West. And so the result of that is you restrict military-age people at least coming in to your country. That's uh, what happened in World War II. Of course, the Japanese um, were restricted from coming in, uh, the Germans and the um, uh, the Italians. And of course, the Japanese uh, were moved inland uh, away from the shore because the um, the U.S. government had received or decrypted Japanese cables saying that the Japanese Navy was hoping to use the Japanese Americans as, um, like, as uh, yep, a fifth yep. column within, right? Yeah, and provide uh, subterfuge and stuff like that. Right. So I, I think that um, uh, the idea that if we're at war with a particular group, we shouldn't have that group come into the country. Like, that's not insane. And, and you know, Jimmy Carter, what, during the Iran hostage crisis, Jimmy Carter said no one from Iran is allowed to come in. Imagine and, that. Yeah, I mean, Imagine but of course, that. that's completely whitewashed from history. And so for the average person who's been told there's, but there is a war on terror, who's terror? Terror is radical Muslims. Can we figure out whether radical Muslims are coming into America? No, says the director of the FBI. We can't guarantee it. We have no way of knowing it. And, and, and is, the, is the vetting so terrible that this woman who was part of this unholy Bonnie and Clyde from Hell duo that shot up San Bernardino, she put down an address that doesn't even exist. And people are like, yeah, ta- come on ta- in. You're totally ta- fine. Yeah, so clearly ta- there's rabid incompetence in the vetting. There's a war on radical Islam and there's no way to figure out who's in and who's not in. And even if they come in, the next generation is more likely to be radicalized than the current generation. Exactly. So the idea that there's a war on terror and that should have some effect on restriction of movement, that is not a controversial statement to make. And the fact that the media is going completely apeshit about it is a fantastic revelation, I think, for the average American who's like, yeah, I think we should discuss this. And they're like, ah! And that is beautiful. I mean, as long as people can it's see beautiful. this weird, twisted Blanche Dubois neurosis of the media, they'll take a step back and think for themselves. 
Yeah, boy, there's so much to say there. First of all, I think it's so fascinating that, you know, uh, Barack Obama says uh, ISIS is contained. And then the next day there's this shootout in Paris. I think he meant they haven't made it to the moon yet. Like they're contained (laughs) on this planet. That's sort of my theory. We go back to the moon with this NASA. They'll be on the moon. You trust me. Uh, if if um, and and then what? Uh, three days later, he says, "Oh well, the Republicans. Are, what are they afraid of? Are they afraid of widows and orphans?" Well, it turns out two days after he makes this statement, there's a widow and an orphan uh, as a result of a mass terrorist action here in the United States. It's almost like please keep opening your mouth because everything you say precipitates the 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 the, the cause that's going to uh, present you as as a liar. Hey, look, our assistant just got here with some uh, with some Christmas decorations. Uh, so here's the thing, Stefan. You're right. It makes their head explode. It, they, they can't handle that. They don't know what to do about it. And and it shows the pervasiveness of the power of the media to control information. And by controlling information, they control people's votes. Argument I made a bunch uh, was Evan Thomas uh, at, was back at Newsweek magazine. And in 2004, he just kind of slipped up. This is a major New York newsman, right, uh, said that he thought that the press bias for John Kerry was 15 points. 15 points at the polls is what he estimated it at. Mm. And that was John Kerry. John Kerry was not even John the Baptist compared to Barack Obama, you know, their Christ. But just as a just as a simple experiment to do, I said, we know that the left that the left is that the media is going to throw more support behind Obama than they did behind Kerry. A lot more. But let's just say it was 15 points. So I took the 2008 electoral map and I subtracted 15 points from the Democrats and added 15 points to the Republicans. And as it turned out, Obama carries D.C. and I think it was Delaware. And McCain, President McCain, is President McCain with 506 electoral votes. That's what happens without media bias. Just off the top of your thumb. It's probably worse than that. So if this guy is destroying this by simply the, – here's the thing about social proof. Social proof – is the most powerful motivator of human behavior. Psychologists are able to identify repeatedly throughout a number of experiments that your most co- your most closely held beliefs will be trumped, if you'll pardon the expression, in virtually all cases, by what everybody else is doing. If everybody else is booing something that you like, you may not boo it, but you won't stand up and go, no, this is awesome. If you're in a room full of things, just be quiet, right? You'll just shut up. The parable of the emperor's new clothes is a parable of the power of social proof, and what it basically says is these two con men come in and tell this king who's quite stupid, your majesty, look at this wonderful new fabric. The thing that's most, aside from its beautiful blue color and its amazing sheen, is that it can only be seen, obviously, by the most intelligent people and the most virtuous people. That's why we're so proud of having developed it. And the king has to make a decision, and he's not going to tell these people I'm not virtuous and I'm not intelligent. Oh, it's wonderful. And then the word gets out to all the courtiers, and all the courtiers going, oh, magnificent. And then he goes down the parade. This is the critical point of the story that most people miss. When the emperor is coming down in the parade and he's naked except for these magnificent clothes that only the smart and the virtuous can see, it's not that the individual person in the parade can see them. No one can see them, but they believe that everybody else can see them. That's why the scam works. That's why it's such a powerful parable. Not because they're deluded into seeing clothes that they don't exist, but rather because they know that those clothes exist. But since everybody else is saying that they believe in them, the social proof is I'd better shut up and act like I believe it. And my silence and my cheering is what reinforces everybody else, right? And when a little boy at the end of the parade says he's not wearing any clothes, he doesn't have to go down the line and argue with each individual person. He has made it permissible to disagree. He's, he's, he's proved to you that you're not insane 
And the whole parade knows they're not insane. And the emperor knows that, that he's not insane. And everybody knows what's going on. And the sham crashes to the ground in a split second. Right. And that's what Trump is doing. It breaks a hypnosis. And I it really feel the that the public age have been hip- hypnotized by the media and for decades. There's a better word than hypnosis. And that word is glamour. The, the original definition of glamour was a spell cast. Glamour in its, in its original um, form referred to a, a magical spell that, that caused people to see beauty where beauty wasn't there. And that's what, that's what glamour is. And that's why show business is so powerful. When George Clooney comes out and, and endorses somebody or, or, uh, or what's her name? Um, oh gosh, uh, Hunger Games uh, chick, Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. When she comes out and says, no, I'm, I'm voting for Hillary and, or, or, or uh, Katy Perry or whatever, it's not just the social proof of, hey, it's another good-looking person. It's the social proof of somebody whose music I admire and, and, who, and whose career I want to emulate and so on. It, the, the glamour of, of Hollywood has a, a huge lever on, on public opinion. And to the degree that we can destroy this just by calling it out. My favorite Trump moment without any question whatsoever is when some he, 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 early on, it was months ago, and so they were like he had like seven thousand people to rally, and I think there were like six people protesting. And somebody stands up and he's taking questions, and he says, uh, uh, "Mr. Trump, what do you what do you have to say to the protesters outside the building?" He says, "What protesters?" He says, "Well, there's a protest going on outside the building." He says, "There's six people out there. There's eight thousand people in here. Six people protesting. Where are you from?" And she said, "CNN." And he went, <laughs> "CNN," and that's it. Right. <laughs> CNN, 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 CNN is the world's news service. CNN is the people that tell you what's right and what's wrong in the world. CNN is the credible source. Wave up his hand, you know, just a wave of his CNN. <laughs> that's genius. Yeah, that's genius. Well, actually, I was just reading today that there's a study that's been done with monkeys, that monkeys will actually pay food pellets to look at pictures of higher status monkeys, but they charge food pellets to look at pictures of lower status monkeys. We're just fascinated by high status people, and we focus on that, and that's natural. I also had a great really? interview with uh, – Di- we'll put the link below. I'll, I'll send it to you. wait. But I had an interview with Dr. Barbara Oakley, who's an expert on pathological altruism, which we touched on last time that we talked. And she pointed out something that has been rolling around in my head like thunder since we had the conversation. I'll sort of pass it along to you and your listeners, which is that for people, when people feel like they're doing good, they get actually physically measurable endorphin rush to the brain. Yes, absolutely. Right. So, so. And this is, it solved a puzzle for me for many years, which is the people who say, oh, we want to help the poor or, oh, we want to help the Middle Eastern refugees. You know, the, the per capita cost for relocating Middle Eastern refugees is um, very cheap. It's like a little over $1,000 to resettle mm-hmm. a, a Middle Eastern refugee in the Middle East. To do it in America, even the short-term cost is $13,000. So it's like almost a 13 to 1 ratio that every Middle Eastern refugee you bring to America is 12 that you're not helping over there. And so you'd think, well, okay, sir. well, we want to help the poor, so we'll put up the welfare state and so on. And people never circle back. And she said they don't circle back and figure out whether the good they wanted to achieve actually did achieve good because that would interfere with their endorphin production. In other words, they're just altruism addicts and they don't care about the consequences any more than a coke addict cares about the consequences or a gambling addict or or any kind of sexual addict cares about the consequences of his actions. So they're just chasing that endorphin high, which is why they don't care what happens. They just need that next hit called self-righteousness, which occurs at a physical level of addiction. And I just found that a really illuminating and fascinating guy. I think, I think based on your reaction, you've heard of this before. Uh, well, I, I'd never heard of the term, and I didn't know about the biochemical reaction, although needless to say, I'm not surprised by it. She called it pathological altruism? Yes. 
The, the term I've been using for pretty much my entire career is unearned moral superiority. I like pathological altruism a lot better, but it's the same thing. It's unearned moral superiority. And it's a way for people to show that they're more moral people, more intelligent people, more caring people, more loving people, better than you are in every way. See, they're not allowed to, as leftists, and especially as indoctrinated people, they're not allowed to succeed through their own merit. They're not allowed to get rich because of their hard work. They're not allowed to do any of these things. But as vic- in, a, in a victimhood society, the more that they can show you that they care about the victims, the higher they go in the hierarchy of their own personal value system. It's unearned moral superiority, which is why when I argue with these people, I don't go right to the facts in the history. I find where the unearned moral superiority is, and I just kick that out from under him as hard as I can. For example, you may have a bumper sticker on your car that says free Tibet, and you may be advertising on the back of your Prius, obviously, and you may be advertising to every single person on the 405 freeway how morally advanced you are because you want to free the people of Tibet, which are lovely Buddhist kind people and they're very gentle when they're here to fly. Free Tibet. And you're doing your part and you're speaking truth to power. Well, if you actually wanted to free Tibet, you probably should have a bumper sticker that says the United States Marine Corps. I mean, if you really want to free Tibet, that would be an awful lot better than a guy driving, a, you know, some douchebag driving a, a Prius down the 405 freeway. But that's not how it works. They're not interested in freeing Tibet. They're interested in showing people that they're interested in freeing Tibet. They're not interested in the results. The difference between a conservative and a liberal, I've been, I was quite proud of this formulation. It's, it, I haven't heard it before anyway. It doesn't mean nobody else said it. But the difference between a conservative and a liberal is a conservative would rather feel bad about doing good and a liberal would rather feel good about doing harm. And, and that's exactly what it is. Their policies have destroyed black America, destroyed it from where Booker T. Washington wanted to take black America to these high standards, which he achieved, by the way, consistently achieved. But no, it's much easier to take this uh, this unearned moral superiority and claim that we're helping people and handing them money and making them dependent. The Democratic Party is the largest slaveholder in the history of the world. They've got how many slaves do they have now in this country? 30 million. They, their, their terms of their slavery are very simple. You, there's a word for somebody who, who is fed and clothed and housed and whose health care is taken care of by another person. And that word is slave. And on the voting plantation that the Democratic Party has set up in America, we demand two hours of work from you every two years. Every two years, we demand that you go down to the voting places and vote once, twice, three, four times, or every times as you can imagine or manage. And that's that's the work we expect for you in exchange for keeping you in bondage. And there's no other word for it, this dependency. It's mental bondage. When they hand out those um, – when they recharge those EBT cards – they don't send away ways, and they're not in there trying to find ways to get people off of this. They've got some, some you know, some face value, you know, just some token kind of did you look for a job today kind of thing. There's no, there's no serious effort to get people into the marketplace. And when we say into the marketplace, the left here is just saying, oh, what, making money for corporations? No, dumbass. Making money for yourself, you moron, you, you, you museum-grade moron. What we're trying to say to black America, just as an example, is – no, you can stay in the world you're in now where somebody hands you a, an Obama phone for free, some crappy second generation piece of junk that's got 30 minutes a month on it. Yeah, you'll get that for free. But if we could get if we could get a hold of your mind for a little bit and, and open up economic opportunities, you'll be able to be in the Apple store in line for the i7 the day it opens because you've made enough money to live like a person who has control over his own destiny. We can break these mental chains of slavery, but that's not what they're interested in. And so it, it comes back to what kind of people, when we talk about Muslim immigration and, and Trump saying we should ban Muslim immigration, we have a right as Americans to say, what is this country about and is this helping this idea of this country or is it hurting it? 
if if the ideology coming into this country is dead set on overthrowing this country and replacing our freedoms with religious totalitarianism that puts women in sex and throws homosexuals off of tall buildings, I have a say about that. I'm against it. Well, and this is, it's something that I was not raised particularly to, to ask, but I think it's an important question just vis-a-vis immigration. America is the prettiest woman on the planet in a lot of ways in terms of the number of people who want to go out with her. You and so you kind of got your, your, your pick and choice. Now, I think in general, if you wish to maintain a particular country or culture or system, the best way to do that is to have babies inside that system. You know, they Correct. grow up speaking English, they're exposed to the Judeo-Christian, yes. Greek or Roman ideas. So that's sort of number one. Number two is people should come into the country who are the most compatible to those values. Now, in a true free market, that would happen of its own accord. Of course it would. Now, of the, course and it then, would. But then you, you start getting into difficulties when it's like, okay, these people have no experience of Western life, they don't speak the language, no experience of the culture, never gone through a reformation, never gone through rationalism, scientific revolution, no Greco-Roman history, no Socratic method of tradition, no separation of church and state, no respect for rights of women, minorities, homosexuals, you go on and on, right? And so the question I think which uh, Americans and Europeans and Canadians will all need to ask is, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Welfare use rates, 30% of native households, that's bad enough, and that number should come way down to zero. I'd rather private charities take care of them, but nonetheless, Mm -hmm. 30% households, native households, 51% of immigrant households, and 62% of illegal immigrant households. Now, given that half of the um, uh, immigrants into America over the past eight years have been Muslims, and that America has taken far more than the rest of the world combined, the question is, do you want to have your own children, or do you want to pay for other people's children? And it takes a severely crippled biological entity, a a severely cuckolded biological entity to say, you know what's great? I'd rather have only one child, or maybe no children, so that an antithetical culture that comes into the country can have five, or six, or seven children. That is so deranged. You have to ask, look yourself in the mirror and say, What's in it for me as a taxpayer, as a worker, as someone who's grown up and is heavily invested in the Western way of life? What is in it for me if 100,000 people from an antithetical culture, who, by the way, the average IQ in Syria is 83, that is not very compatible with a high-functioning, high-intelligence-requiring, pay-you-by-your-brains kind of society – what is in it for me? And, and if you can ask that question, I think the answer becomes fairly obvious. And those who can't answer that question are back into chasing this pathological altruism dopamine fix that is the death of everyone. To say that the West has a cuckolded uh, life force or a cuckolded cultural desire is about the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. I've never, ever heard it put so instantly comprehensibly as that. I mean, that just the second you said that, I said that's exactly what we want. We want other people's children to come into our world and, and, and take over our stuff. Uh, and, and that we have no desire to pass our own, we have no desire to produce our own families, we have no desire to, to look past the moment, we have no desire to save, there's no reason to save, there's no reason for discipline, it's all about me and when I die, yeah, that's just genius. You know, I took a look at the um, the official uh, list of, of legal immigrants into the country, and, and it showed which ones by state. But I looked at the top 10, um, the top 10 countries in terms of immigrants into America, and they're from many mul- multiple different regions, but I did find one thing in common. The top nine out of the top 10 immigrants coming into the American country, into America now, the top nine countries out of the top 10 are all third world countries. Every single one of them is a failed state. Every one of them. Number 10 is Canada. I'll take all the Canadians there are, frankly. I'll take every one of them. Um, now, look, 
this leads to a larger point, and it leads to understanding how the left has manipulated us into giving up the, the, the greatest society in the history of the world by just surrendering, how they made us surrender. And the way they've made us surrender, and this has got some archaic aspect to it too, because they don't have any rules, because they don't have any standards, they don't have any sense of, of, of fair play, because they don't have any uh, respect for, for um, honesty in competition – they have used our own ethical system against us in order to achieve all of this. And when we come to immigration, I think you can sum it up like this. They point to the Statue of Liberty and they say, give us your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I lift my light bes- be, you know, beside the golden door. And they say, this is what made America great. And it's anti-American to turn these Syrian refugees away or these Cuban refugees, although I, Cubans are escaping communism. I'm actually OK with them. Refugees from Chad, Afghanistan, all these other places. And so they make us they make us they put us at, at conflict with our own deeply held values. When Obama says that we're better than this as Americans, it's a ploy. It's a it's a complete stratagem. It's a lie. But it hits, it lands, you know, it makes us think, it makes us guilty. I don't, you know, well, my parents came over from England and I don't know if I would have, so, so what, so what this leftist attack is, it is very much like AIDS. It's a virus that gets into the immune system and disables the immune system. Um, so my response to this would be, yes, the Statue of Liberty and this essence of American immigration does say, give us your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. But first of all, it doesn't say, give us only your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Right. It doesn't say give us only them um, in when when it was written, these huddled masses were people who, as you say, were coming from the West. They were Irish immigrants, German immigrants. They were they were Italian immigrants uh, and, and they were coming Norwegian immigrants. They were coming from the same set of values as Europe and they were huddled masses and they were poor. But they had the ability to get off of the boat in Ellis Island and any time during the 1800s and right up until probably about the. 1940s or even later, all throughout the Industrial Revolution, in fact, right up until the beginning of the Information Age, any one of these huddled masses of of hopelessly poor people could get off the boat at Ellis Island and get a job on an assembly line. I mean, no disrespect whatsoever to people in the manufacturing business. I have enormous respect for people in the manufacturing business, but it is easier to teach somebody who doesn't speak the language or doesn't have the, to operate one stage of an assembly line and produce economic goods and take home a paycheck. This is not, this is, this is not the same these days. You're absolutely right about the free market. You know, people who, who, who want to come to America and live here, there are people from 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 very desperately poor countries that want to do this, but there are people in Germany. There are people there are people in Canada. There are people in Australia who want to come here, who have filled out the forms and stood in line, and they're ready to take the test. They'd be an enormous asset if all of the immigrants coming to their country were Republicans or were going to be Republicans. It would be the Democrats who'd be talking about building a wall and sealing the border and making sure that they don't that they don't get in here. I don't understand why immigration now has to be Spanish immigration. I don't understand it. I understand that we've had an enormous wave of it. I live in a city that's virtually bilingual. I don't understand why America has to be a beacon for people who speak Spanish, but not people who speak Polish. Well, of course, um, the the, the fundamental issue is the welfare state. And America was a nation of immigrants, but uh, generally from European heritage and 
there was no welfare state. So the people right. by so definition were coming over to work. Or else you're, you're not yeah. a burden on the rest of us. Exactly. And a lot of people didn't, didn't make it and, and went back. And so they self-deported because they couldn't make it. And that is how it should work. Of course, I'm completely for free immigration and emigration. But forced association is a violation of freedom of association. And welfare is just forced association, forced to give charity to people who you may not otherwise want to give charity to. And the other thing, too, is that when it comes to immigration, uh, Christopher Hitchens said uh, that he was tired of, of one-way multiculturalism. In other words, the Muslims come to largely Christian, I think it's still 70-80% Christian, the Muslims come to Christian America, but try going to Saudi Arabia and exactly. setting up a Christian church. Uh, you're not going to have much luck. And one thing that is very true in the study of biology is that two subspecies never belong inhabit the same area like no, if, right. if you've got a bunch of black squirrels and a bunch of gray squirrels move in you're either going to end up with all gray squirrels or all black squirrels because they're all competing for the same resources and they're antithetical to each other because it's win-lose in that situation that's right now that's not the case if everyone's got the same kind of tolerant values and so on but when you bring when you have the value of tolerance and you bring in people who are intolerant uh, you are acting against your value called tolerance. Tolerance for intolerance is just one of these logical conundrums that should be thrown out with yesterday's dishwater mm -hmm. because it really fundamentally destroys the value of that which you're trying to protect. And when it comes to ethnicities and opposing values, you know, businesses, you can have a whole bunch of different businesses all competing in the internet search space, and that's not what I'm talking about. But it's win-lose values, whereas Sharia law wins, Anglo-Saxon common law and the Constitution is destroyed. If the Constitution wins, Sharia law can't be there. That's the red and the gray squirrel. And that's why you see culturally homogenous neighborhoods where when a whole bunch of new culture moves in, the old culture moves out and so on. It's just a basic biological reality. And as we have found out with communism and other failed ideologies, we ignore biology at our peril. We certainly do. And, um, and I was uh, just yesterday did an interview with a, with a conservative from Sweden. And, and was he, we were talking a little bit about economic policies, but I was much more interested in the cultural policies about this invasion. And, and it seems like it's changing over there. You know, the, the fact that, you know, that the, the huge numbers of, of, of rapes in Sweden are, are it's become the rape capital of Europe. And they're 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 all caused not not some of them. They're 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 virtually all in in um, in Oslo five years in a row. The percentage of rape caused by Muslim immigrants was 100 percent. It wasn't 70 percent. It was 100 percent. So I wanted to talk to this guy about this, and I said, "Why? Why? What's the motive for this for Sweden?" And it's a long story, but basically, he said that the policy of Sweden was that it was equally incumbent on the immigrant and the native Swede to create this new multicultural Sweden that would be different. And I, for the life of me, cannot fathom that. For I, I can't fathom it. I can I can understand a world where we try to import people into Sweden and they assimilate and, and they help make Sweden stronger and they and all the values that that you would hold as Swedes are upheld and stuff. But this idea that we are going to purposely we are purposely going to merge with something that in most cases is antithetical to something we believe and the stated purpose is to create something new, but no one's going to say what that new thing is. That's madness. And this is this is the difference between Sweden and the United States. The the United States is an immigrant culture. That's why when they say it's anti-American to block out a group of immigrants, it goes right to the heart of us. It, it, it It's that defense. It goes right past our immune system and goes right to the cells. Right. But 
the, the reason America has succeeded is because the melting pot and the multicultural salad are, in fact, antithetical models. You do not have discrete societies living shoulder to shoulder next to each other, each preserving their own identity and living together in harmony and peace. It doesn't happen anywhere in human history. It doesn't happen anywhere in the world today. And it doesn't happen with biology either. Team one wins, team two wins, or they merge to form team C, but something changes. The, the entire genius of the melting pot was was not that these that these immigrants would come and 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 live in isolated communities they would in fact bring their ethnicity and their cultures and their food and their traditions with them and it would change the flavor of the stew a little but the but the overall culture remained the same it was primarily english speaking it, it well it wasn't primarily english it was english speaking and the first generations of immigrants from poland germany italy uh, the one thing these people had in common was they may speak uh, italian at home but their children were speaking english from day 1 because they wanted their kids to be americans i mean that's that's how it worked and this idea that these people were going to give up their existing identities and come here and assume a new identity worked only because we as Americans have a philosophy that says, I personally believe this, I really do, that if you come here legally, that you want to live under this system and you spend seven years and, and, and virtually all of your life savings and you're filling in forms and you do all that stuff, you come to this country, you take a citizenship test that 95% of the U.S. citizens could never pass, you raise your right hand, you swear an oath to protect the Constitution of the United States, you're as American as somebody got off the Mayflower. That was the deal. You give up your old identity you come here as a new person, you're an American now. We don't have to worry about your old uh, alliances and identities. We don't have to worry about whether you're going to go for Islam or Italy or Germany if we're at war with these things. We, you're here. You're one of us now. And in exchange for that, in exchange for you abandoning that and coming here and accepting our ways, in exchange for that, we will grant you the authenticity that will not be granted to anyone anywhere else in the world. If you're a Muslim in France, it doesn't matter if you're a French citizen. The French will never accept you as a true Frenchman because that goes back to soil and ancestry and race and everything else. It's a unique – it was a unique bargain that's only been made once in the history of the world to produce the most dynamic, creative, powerful force in the history of the world. And by stopping this melting pot idea and breaking it down to this salad – they knew that they were going to reduce the most powerful single nation in the world into a endless series of warring tribes that could be set one against the other so that they could rule over the ruins. Yeah, it's become uh, a war of ethnicities. Uh, everybody's grappling to gain control of the power of the government in the same way that the Protestant Reformation was, you know, the Calvinists, the Evangelians, the Lutherans, the Anabaptists, all trying to gain power of the state in order to impose their view of the world on everyone else. And I think what's happening in the West now, and particularly in America, although it's certainly growing in Europe, is that we live in a state of internecine ethnic warfare. Because the state has become so powerful, uh, everybody is given up trying to sell goods in the free market and is simply clamoring in this cry-bully, politically correct kind of way to gain control of the narrative, to gain control of state power, to impose uh, it's win-lose. And, and the state and its power to redistribute income and grant favors and, and punish people has created, unlike of the free market where it's win-win, has created this win-lose environment. And the separation of state and ethnicity is going to have to be the end result of this if we're going to survive at all in the same way that the separation of church and state was required as a result of the Reformation. Let's take a let's take a meta look. At, that's why I enjoy talking to you so much. Let's take a meta look at the cry bully phenomenon. That's a really new term, but it's perfect. It's another one of those words that the second you hear it, you know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so let's just presume for the moment that the truth is actually the truth, and that over 40 years the left has managed to breed all sense of individual achievement out of 
um, out of the population, especially out of the male population, that any form of competition is demonized and, and, and penalized, that boys are treated as defective girls who just don't share enough and are potential rapists at age six, and that the most important thing is that nobody wins and nobody loses on their own merit. Everybody gets a, a participant pro- trophy because for one person to come in first would damage the self-esteem of everybody else. Let's say that you put that through two generations of, of American youth. What are you left with? Because you are left with biology, right? We know that biology doesn't change. This is the essence of conservatism is that this stuff, this stuff has been around for at least 250,000 years, probably more like a million two in its present form. And Socialism gave me six fingers. <laughs> that's right. It changes very, very slowly. The motivations change. They don't change essentially for, for all intents and purposes. They don't. So what happens to the biology of children who have not been allowed to compete? Well, Competition has not been bred out of them genetically because that's just not possible. So you have to ask yourself, what can they compete in? Because people do, as you said, it's that it's that pathological altruism. People need the endorphin rush of, of winning. They need the endorphin rush, rush of being seen to be better than other people, of being looked up to. What have they got to compete in? They can't compete in business because, as we all know, it's, you'd be a fat one uh, fat cat one percenter and you'd be oppressing the poor. So you can't compete in business. You can't compete in sports. You can't be richer than somebody else. The only thing you can compete in is who is the biggest victim? Who is Who has gotten highest on the totem pole of their value system, which is victimhood and oppression? And the interesting thing about that is if you're competing for economic success, you are competing against one another and the marketplace and, and people's free will decisions will determine who's successful. But if you're competing for prime victimhood, the only solution to you winning that is the coercive power of the state coming in from the top and that's why the state loves this victimhood thing because the only people that can correct injustice or perceived injustice is no such thing as this kind of social injustice just i just don't buy it the only people that can come to the rescue there is not themselves they can't set up a a victimhood company that does better than other victimhood companies and outperforms them in the markethood of victimology, they have to have the legislative power of the state come in and crush the opposition, and the state is just fine with that. They just think that's swell. All right. I know you've got a bit of a stop. I just want to make one more point, which will hopefully lure you into another rant. Here we go. Okay. Now, I had a a fellow on uh, who was talking about, uh, I'm fascinated by the genetics of IQ. I just think it's one of these great explanatory uh, avenues that still needs further exploration, but has the potential to explain a lot. And he was pointing out how, you know, um, the um, Ashkenazi Jews, the Jews, the diasporic Jews, the Jews not in Israel, which are to a large degree Sephardic Jews, but they have an average IQ about 150 and 120 plus if you count verbal skills. They're lower wow. on the visuospatial, uh, which is why there are so many Jewish writers and comedians. Uh-huh. I mean, they just have this and it's 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 genetic. It's biological. It's not cultural. Uh, or I shouldn't say 80, 60 to 80 percent is, is mm-hmm. considered to be genetic. Now, in the ancient world, the Jews were not considered to be bright at all. You look, you scour ancient writings for like, wow, these Jews are really smart and funny and you can't find a thing. And uh, geneticists have found that the genes associated with high Jewish, uh, particularly verbal IQ, about 700 years old. And this is one of the things that changed was that the most intelligent Jews had the most kids and the least intelligent Jews had the least kids. And they've traced all of this through. And I won't get into all the reasons why. We'll put a link to the interview below. But in 700 years, they assumed that you could get a third of an IQ point per generation up. And, And as a result of 700 years, you have arguably, and you just look at the lists of sort of Nobel Prizes and Pulitzer Prizes, arguably the most intelligent group collectively uh, in, in the world. And that's and the so, result of 700 years of relatively random breeding 
for intelligence. And again, just, just just so I can fully understand this, the argument would be that uh, in most cases, it doesn't matter who has the most kids. But in the case of being an oppressed minority who has to live by its wits, essentially, in, in what is essentially a foreign land all the way around the world, success in business and intelligence, education, learning, they were they were pro survival traits. They were they were selected. And those those families that had those high IQ traits were were, were more successful passing the genes down. And you said a third of an IQ point per, per generation. Yeah, Man, and that results that, in a fifteen. That's that, we could be we could be someplace really amazing. Pretty well, quick. I imagine, right? And and also, um, yeah, if you if you don't have land, you need your wits, and so those right, who are right, able right. to okay, got it. Got had it. portable wealth, the wealth in in the skull, that and also, sense. of course, uh, the rabbis. You know, one of the great tragic dysgenic uh, pro- programs of the Western world was to take Is, the very smartest that- people. From it the dark ages. Sorry, go ahead. Celibacy for priests, right? Celibacy for priests. Yes, you they it. were the smartest, most educated people in their societies, and they were not allowed to have children. Anytime one of them got a half a sense uh, of, of insight or learning and was able to pass it on to his children, he was just it was just blocked. Absolutely you got it. right. You Dumbest got it. thing that ever, the West ever did. Absolutely yeah. moronic. But but on the other hand, it did help the Catholic Church accumulate a lot of land. Anyway, so so this this question of the the evolutionary pressures upon intelligence and there's a, a lot to, I want to get a whole conversation we can do it another time but there's you know something like uh, the Black Death uh, the the plagues that started in the 12th century and went for a couple of centuries afterwards tended to take away the less intelligent who lived you know six to the dozen in in, in rooms in the city right, and the smarter the people the out of the city. exactly yep yep and so and this is just my thought I obviously don't have any proof. But when I think of the degree to which Jewish intelligence, Jewish culture, Jewish life has been shaped by less strong evolutionary forces over a mere 700 years, I look at the Muslim world, Bill, and I think what has 1,400 years been like with a pure breeding for ferocity and compliance? What has that done to the genetic base? Uh, and not, not to mention... Uh, not to mention the fact that it's one of the few religions where cousin marriage is permitted, which causes a yeah. whole host of other yeah. – but I'm, I'm sort of thinking fundamentally uh, because it is fairly easy to trace in the Jewish community the effects that that had, which has been profound and, and fundamental. And I just – I wonder when I see in Saudi Arabia bloggers who have some questions about the universal truth and value of certain sections of the Koran, and you know in the past they would have just been killed. And, and that weeds that – mindset out of the population fairly quickly and the people who then get to breed the most well um we can sort of see uh, where that results and again people can look up the iqs of various nations around the world it's not a perfect standard but it's usually not exactly far off and as far as compatibility goes you know one of the things that's really a great surprise among biologists mm-hmm. these days and um, people can look into a book called the Ten Thousand year explosion for more on this is how rapid human evolution is you know, oh hundreds of thousands of years but human evolution can be extraordinarily rapid just to look at jewish intelligence and i don't know the answer to this but i wonder the degree to which 1400 years of breeding for ferocity and compliance what that has done to the entire psychological makeup of people in the middle east i don't know the answer to that but i really wish we had some clear idea because that to me would speak very fundamentally to in a sense a biocompatibility between uh, it's not just a, a mindset that you could adopt and come and go i wonder Completely. the degree to which they've been You're wired containers poured like water poured into the containers that's right 1400 years of evolution I'd love to talk about that. I just want to go back to one thing you said because that that the business I didn't know the business about the Jewish intelligence rise. Um, I did know that that by um, 
by having the priesthood be celibate, you were basically capping intelligence every generation, anytime somebody had some learning. But here's a thought for you. I'm, I'm sure this has occurred to you. Maybe it hasn't. It just now occurred to me for the first time. You can basically say that the Enlightenment followed only because of, of the Reformation, only because of the destruction of the priesthood as being the source of knowledge. Now, if everybody can have their own direct pathway to God, then people who are intelligent are not required to be celibate. There are other things that they can do. And one of the other things they can do is have intelligent babies. And, and, all and of where, sudden, did the, where did it begin to occur? In, in the Protestant in, countries. And Max Weber course. thought it was because of the work ethic, but of I would course. argue it's because the priests could have children. The work ethic comes from the religion. If you look at the new world, these are unpleasant facts for leftists, but if you look at the new world, there are there are two Americas. There's really only two, and it's not North America and South America. The border is the U.S.-Mexico border because Canada and the United States were, were settled primarily – by Protestants with a high with a high degree of personal work ethic and a very intolerant view of top down authority and everything south of the Mexican border was was founded uh, was settled by Catholics who were here for the gold. The English came here to develop the land and to become rich and to become traders and merchants. The the Spanish colonized South America and Central America for the gold. They just wanted the gold. And and that's the fundamental difference between the explosion of Western Europe is all a result of this. But back to the desert thing, you know, with Islam, one of the things that one follows the other. This is what um, Frank Herbert's book was so brilliant about. This is the whole thing that made Dune such a brilliant piece of work. Have you read it? I've seen the movie. I'm afraid I haven't read the book. Well, you should read the book. The movie was appalling. But basically what Herbert was saying was that there's this imperial empire of enormous power, enormous power, and it's dependent on this spice which grows on one planet. They need it for their navigation. It's a mind-enhancing drug for their navigation. But basically what they say is this entire galactic empire was overthrown by the inhabitants of this planet because it was a desert planet. And because it was a desert planet, the conditions were so harsh that the warriors from this planet were simply the most spectacular warriors in the world. Absolutely fearless, absolutely ruthless and brutal. So, look, we know there's not any discussion about this. Uh, the environment selects the animal, right? The environment selects the, the kind of life form. If you've got a life form that needs an awful lot of water and, and, and loses water quickly, it's not going to make it in the desert, and it doesn't matter how much you try. If you take the fact that, that, that the Middle East has been an extremely resource-poor area for quite a long time now. In fact, when you read the Bible, you, you, you hear about these oases, and these things are like the size of a, of a small park. I mean, forget Central Park. These things are like the size of a, of a community park. There's like water coming out of the ground in one place. My God, let's build a, a city here. So you've got, you've got an environment of, of ruthless resource restriction. What is that going to breed in, in, the most, in, the, in the one creature on Earth that is adaptable to all environments? It's going to select for brutality, ruthlessness, the ability, if you have to murder your children because there's not enough food or water for them this year, you leave them out on a rock or whatever you do, it's going to, it's going to breed a sense of absolute ferocity and and. Nothing. Intelligence isn't going to help you if there's no water. Intelligence isn't going to help you if there's no animals to hunt. Intelligence is not selected there. Ruthlessness is. Discipline is. Severity is. And this has been in place long before Islam came along. But then you have so then you have to ask yourself, why does the Islamic religion appeal so strongly to the Arab mindset? 
And it's because a religion that it because ultimately it is a religion about conquering other people's resources. The Quran is a is a history book of conquest and it's a manual for conquest. It has terms for the fate truce. It has terms for sending false messages. It tells you how to handle slaves. It tells you it tells you what to do with a conquered population. Convert those you can. Those who are believers in the Abrahamic tradition will make them dimmies and they're they're going to be our slaves, but we'll let them live as long as they pay a tax. And the infidels are killed. It appeals to people who have nothing and who see riches in others. It's a religion that appeals to the people who hate the West because they want the West and they can't have it. And if we're talking about letting these people into the country unreformed, an immigrant is somebody who wants to give up their old life and come here. When my grandfather came here, he made a pretty clear decision. If England and war ever go to America, he's going he's gonna to go to war on the American side. That, that was the deal. But when you're bringing in people who are especially not even determined to come here, they're, they're fleeing here with these extremely savage and ferocious value set and with a religion that calls for the conquest of the earth and whose afterlife looks like Las Vegas but must be completely deprived on this planet. In my mind, that is exactly like letting giant boatloads of people wearing Nazi armbands off of the dock at Ellis Island in, in 1943 and, and said, yeah, what could possibly go wrong? And the answer is pretty much everything. So, all right, well, let, let's wrap it up. Uh, I'd love to keep chatting, but uh, we have to not uh, exhaust the patience of our listeners. Plus, of course, uh, their ideas are coming at them uh, like a series of bowling balls coming out of a cannon from the side of a ship. That's so, uh, BillWhittle.com, uh, highly recommended. Uh, and if you get a chance to see Bill speak live, I haven't as yet. Otherwise, I'd have heckled already. But uh, you should go and see Bill as a great public speaker. And uh, the fact that you do it without notes and just keep going with fantastic rapid-fire insights is very impressive to me. I, I bow at the feet of the master. But oh, you uh, don't bow at the feet of the master. We're having a great conversation. You're not using notes either. And by the way, for uh, for my listeners, the seven or eight people that may trot over there, uh, read a uh, take a look at this uh, personal message from Stephen Molyu. It's just uh, seven or eight minutes, and uh, it's up recently. Uh, you know, we all need support in this thing. Neither of us are funded by giant. Uh, corporations, which which I'd be happy to be funded by, but we're not funded by the state, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, if, if you get anything out of this, uh, it sure would be nice for both sides if you could help us keep it coming, because we depend SCF. on your voluntary, so, we depend on your voluntary willing willingness to trade money for what you perceive value with. We don't have the money to take it from you coercively by force, because if we did, we certainly would have done it a long time ago. And then we <laughs> wouldn't be doing this internet nonsense. We'd be living like kings like the rest of these progressive politicians. Let's uh, let, let's show people the voluntarism can work. So freedomainradio.com for my website, billwhittle.com for bills. Uh, always a pleasure. I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks so much. I Bill. hope so too, Stefan. Thanks. We'll see you.